One thing every expected couple can count on receiving, whether they want it or not, the suggestions about what to name their child. Uh, family, friends, even strangers are quick to ask, have you thought about this name? Or, or what about this name? Or maybe you ought to go with this name. On both occasions when the Schraders have shared with us that they were expecting, my good buddy Jeff Dumo was quick to suggest they go with the name Jeff. And obviously on the first one, they didn't. From what I understand, they're not going with that name on the second. They're going with a stronger, more regal name, either Sean or Shauna. <laughs> Actually, I have not heard that, but, but it'd be great if they did. This obnoxious practice of giving suggestions for names, it's been around for a long, long time. In fact, travel with me back a few thousand years to the time of Isaiah. This guy was given a suggestion for a name even before his wife was pregnant. Actually, it's more than a suggestion. He was told what to name his future son. You say, told? What, what do you mean he was told? Well, here's the story. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Mahir Shalel. Hosh Baz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah, as reliable witnesses for me. And then, speaking of a time later, I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, Name him Mahir Shalal Hash Baz. So, how do you suppose Isaiah's wife reacted when she heard that name? It's a hunch, I don't know for sure, but something tells me that she kind of whispered in Isaiah's ear, hey, let's slow down, buddy. Uh, we need to talk about this just a little bit more. Uh, surely we can come up with something better uh, for our son. And it's not because the little rascal didn't look like a Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. It's not because that was the name of her high school boyfriend who turned out to be a real jerk. Uh, no, it was more significant than that. In the ancient world, the meaning of a name was a big deal. And the meaning of the name that she had just been given for her precious newborn was this, quick to plunder or swift to spoil. No parent wants to yell out the back door, hey, quick to plunder, it's time for dinner. <laughs> or hey, swift to spoil, it's, it's time for your bath. This isn't the type of name that you're looking for, but... But Isaiah had to go with it. It wasn't really a choice in the matter. And why was that? Well, you, you heard it in the text. It's because this name wasn't given to him by a family member or a relative or a good friend or a minister. This name was given to him by the Lord God Almighty, the one who created and sustains the universe, the one who gives life and, and takes life. He's the one that said, Isaiah, this is what you're going to name your son. And why did God choose that name? Why was this a big deal to God to give this little boy this particular name? Well, Isaiah was a prophet. A prophet spoke a message to God's people. And oftentimes, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that God's big on object lessons. To communicate a message he wants a nation to receive, he speaks to the prophet, but he also uses an object lesson to get the point across. And so what's the meaning of this particular message? Well, 
To explain this, I need to set the historical context for you this morning. Before I do that, I want to share with you just a quick story, recent story. Two weeks ago, I was in the Welcome Center, and a person, one of our members, walks up to me, strikes up a conversation with me, and he says to me, hey, Sean, typically, I only hear about 30 to 40 percent of what you're saying up there on a Sunday morning. My mind just tends to come in and out. It was a really encouraging conversation uh, to hear those words. And a part of me said, you can't really tell this story. You don't want to hurt the guy's feelings. But then I realized chances are there's only 30, 40 percent chance he's even listening right now, right? <laughs> Jeff Sadler, did you hear it? You are listening right now. All right, buddy. I I'm sorry, I apologize if I just hurt your feelings. <laughs> uh, Jeff went on to say a few other things to me, but I had stopped listening, and so I didn't really hear the rest of the conversation. The reason I tell you this story, get it back on track, is because right now, there's going to be this huge temptation for your mind to go in a lot of different directions, because you might find this a little bit boring, but I, I think it's important to what we're going to talk about, and so try to hang with me for just a few minutes here. This was a very nervous time for people who were living in the Middle East. And the reason is because the Assyrian Empire, which was notorious for the brutality and the cruelty, they were on the move. I mean, they were, they were knocking off one city after another city after another city, and nobody knew exactly what to do. Israel, the northern kingdom of God, made this decision. Our best chance of surviving this is for us to align ourselves with our neighbor Syria to fight the Assyrians. Well, this was a bad decision. It wasn't a good one at all. And God makes this clear with the naming of Isaiah's little boy. We read these words, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 4. He says this, For before the boy, the son of, speaking of the son of Isaiah, knows how to say, My father or my mother. The wealth of Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and the plunder of Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. It says, hey, you see that little toddler out there in Isaiah's front yard? What's his name again? Oh, oh that little toddler? That's all quick to plunder. Bad news, that's what's about to happen to you. You're going to be plundered, and you're going to be plundered soon. Now, this terrible plan was one that Israel was desperate for their estranged brothers in the south, the southern kingdom, to join in on. But aligning themselves with Israel and Syria was not something the king of Judah, Ahaz, had the least bit of interest in doing. He didn't want any part of this particular plan. That ticked off Israel. And so Israel comes up with a new plan. The new plan is this. What we're going to do first is we're going to attack Judah with the help of Syria. We're going to run a sword through Ahaz, and then we're going to appoint a new leader for their nation who will make the decision to align with us and join in on this particular plan. So here's the situation for Ahaz. He is stuck in the, between a hard and a rock place. His situation is such that on one border you have Israel and Sahara, uh, Syria. They're, they're just ready to march in and conquer them. 
And then on the other border, you have the biggest of the bad boys, Assyria, who's ready to crush them as well. And so here's King Ahaz, and he's, he's stuck. He's, he's got these two enemy forces all around him that are just ready to conquer him and defeat him. He's trying to figure out, what do I do in this particular situation? And the only thing that he can come up with, the only hope that he believes that Judah has of surviving this situation is this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay the Assyrian Empire to protect us from Israel and Syria. That's our best bet. That's what we've got to go with. And that's an awful plan on so many different levels, but primary is this, is because it showed a complete lack in trust, confidence in their God. So God, in response, He sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz to ask him a question. And this is a paraphrase of the question. Simply says this, Ahaz, why in the world would you turn to a bunch of bloodthirsty pagans instead of trusting in me? Like, why, why would you do that? And then to show Ahaz that he is the God who's capable of doing all things, including protecting nations from violent oppressors, God gave him a sign. And this is the sign. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey, and when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah." He will bring the king of Assyria. Okay, let's press pause here for just a moment and talk about how prophecy works in Scripture. Once you think about looking at a mountain range uh, from a long distance away, what does it look like? Well, it looks like the peaks are connected, right? It, it looks like one range just rolls right into another range, but if you move closer and you get real close, you realize there's a gap between the two, several miles between those two mountain ranges. And oftentimes, this is the way that prophecy works in Scripture. What appears to be just one prophecy really is a gap between an initial fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment of that particular prophecy. So, how was this prophecy initially fulfilled? The best explanation, in my opinion, is this, is that Isaiah is he's referring to an unmarried woman in the royal house who's going to marry and she's going to conceive. And this new mother, who probably doesn't know anything about this prophecy, she's going to make the decision to name her son Emmanuel. Now, while that may have been his given name, most scholars believe that the person that's being referred to here is Hezekiah, who followed Ahaz on the throne in Judah. Whether that's correct or not, it's not nearly as important as what happened. Here's what happened. Within a year, maybe two, of that prophecy being made, Assyrians, they just decimated two of the nations that were threatening Judah. They decimated Israel and Syria. This should have lit a fire under King Ahaz. 
It should have caught his attention when he hears this is going to happen one, two years earlier. It then happens exactly like God said through the prophet Isaiah. It should have made him realize, you know what, I need to align my life. I need to rely on the Lord God Almighty of the heavens. That He needs to be my God. But, but Ahaz is a bit of a knucklehead. And so he continues to rely upon his own wisdom. And he continues to make terrible, terrible decisions. So that's the initial fulfillment of the prophecy, but, but what's the ultimate fulfillment that's going to take place? Well, when God speaks to Ahaz, to the prophet Isaiah, he's looking 700 years into the future. On his mind, there is a teen girl by the name of Mary who is a virgin, and he's thinking about this young lady who's going to give birth to a child, a little boy, and she's going to name him Emmanuel, God with us. And in chapter 9, the prophet further elaborates on what God planned to do for all of those who are living under the weight of fear and gloom and oppression. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 4 through 5. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulder. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Isaiah says, here's the deal. The day is coming when God is going to free all those who are oppressed but not only that, he's going to bring an end to war altogether. That's what's going to happen. And how exactly is he going to accomplish this? Well, this is the playbook for every nation that existed then and continues to be play the playbook for most every nation that exists now. Is that we're going to end war with war that we're going to assemble a mightier army than our enemy, that we are going to become the biggest bully. And so here's the anticipation. What God's going to do is he's going to send a new warrior. He's going to send a new warrior like David or maybe Samson, who's going to take charge and he's going to use might and power and just beat the other nations down, and that's the way it's going to go. But I want you to listen to what Isaiah shares instead. He says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. Did you get that? As God's answer to every bully that has ever terrorized us is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is a baby, a baby. At the core of why we celebrate the birth of Jesus is this good news. His coming into the world marks the beginning of the end of war and bullies. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. I mean, everybody who has experienced junior high realizes that bullies are still a force of nature. And anybody who's ever turned on the evening news realizes that wars and rumors of wars are a daily reality. And yes, that's exactly right. We still live in a, in a fallen world, but final justice is coming. It's coming. 
What began in Bethlehem in that manger has all the force of the all-powerful God behind it. The Roman Empire could not stop it, and the gates of hell cannot resist it. That ultimate authority and power, it does not rest with any human government. It does not rest with any dictator. Rather, it rests on the shoulder of the king of kings. This king born in a manger is the hope of the world. And hope has a name. We're going to talk about those names. You see, Isaiah goes on to share four names, four titles that can be described as throne names of the coming king. And these names help us understand his character. They help us understand his mission. They help us understand the implication for us and the way we are to live our lives in response to this great king as well. And so the song that we just sang comes from this text, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. For the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the significance of these names and the implication for our lives. And I hope that what we're reminded of is this. As that because Jesus came into this world, we have reason for hope, even when all appears to be hopeless. Even when we are the person who's stuck between the rock and the hard place, there's still a reason to hope because Jesus came into this world. Hope has a name. One of his names is Wonderful Counselor. It's Wonderful Counselor. That word wonderful, we often use that word to describe something that is amazing. Uh, something that is delightful. We might say things like, oh, that piece of turtle cheesecake, it was wonderful. We might say, your little girl did a wonderful job in the school play. And that's definitely one of the ways that you can use that word, but the word that Isaiah uses in this particular text, in the original language, it carries a slightly different meaning. The word refers to something that is super, supernatural. Something that you can't quite get your mind around. It contains overtures of deity. So what he's saying about Jesus is this, is that the reason that we have wonder for the king that comes into this world is because his divine nature, it's too much for us to even comprehend, even to get our mind around. We can talk about it. We can try to describe it. But there's no possible way that we can fully understand it. He is just absolutely, he's wonderful. He's supernatural. He's, he's too much for us to even comprehend. When you think of the word counselor, what comes to mind? You think about a person that you go to that maybe can help you when you're dealing with a difficult situation or a loss or uh, maybe some emotion that you're struggling with, right? You think about somebody that you go to that can offer you good life advice to help you move forward in life. And no one, I mean, no one is more qualified to play this role in your life than Jesus. I want you to listen to what Isaiah says about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Think of the wisest person you know. You got that person in your mind? 
that person has a thimble worth of knowledge compared to God. And Jesus demonstrated his wisdom by navigating all of life, all the challenges, all the difficulties, all the temptations, with perfection. He never, not once, failed to live up to his father's expectations. And this makes him uniquely qualified to play the role of counselor or life guide for you. But unfortunately, many of us are like Ahaz, right? Well, we tend to decide to trust in our own wisdom. And so I want to ask you the question that any good counselor will ask you if you go to them with a particular problem and you tell them what you've been doing. They're going to ask you this question, I promise you, because I've been asked this question. How's that working for you? How's it working for you? And the answer mostly is it's not working very well. And the sooner that we can figure out that the best thing we can possibly do is go to Jesus, listen to Jesus, and follow Jesus, the better our life will be. Now, there's something also to take note of here, a little bit more important than just that idea of a life guide or a counselor. Is that the word in the original language that's translated counselor is best understood in the context of strategy rather than therapy. In other words, this title, Wonderful Counselor, refers to Jesus as being God's wonderful plan or God's wonderful strategy. So Isaiah's message to a king who will not listen at a time when bullies and fear and cruelty rule the day is that one day a baby is going to be born in, in poverty. And this baby will grow up to be the forever king over every single nation, and he will rule with justice and fairness. And this Messiah king, he'll bring a permanent end to all the war war warfare, and bullies will be judged, and punishment will be exacted. And this is the plan of God that is unfolding, that's in process. And guess who else gets to be a part of this plan? We do. We get to be a part of God's plan. The church is every bit as much of God's wonderful plan, our strategy, that God has for this world. I want you to listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22 through 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is given authority over all things. Jesus is given to us. We are linked to Jesus like a body is linked to the head. And Paul goes on to write in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 through 11, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul indicates that God holds up the church to show the world the wisdom and the power of his plan. In context, Paul is referring to the unity that now exists between Jews and Gentiles. For centuries, these people had ill feelings towards one another, couldn't stand each other. But now you look at these, these 
Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus that Paul's writing to. He says, just, just look at it. Look at God's plan unfolding. These people who couldn't stand each other, they're now sitting side by side. They're now worshiping the same God. When they see each other, they now say things like this, hi, brother, hi, sister. They hug each other. Not only that, they sit down, they share the agape feast together. They take care of each other's needs. This is God's wonderful plan. It's unfolding. This is how a baby in a manger is going to conquer empires. This is how good will overcome evil. It's not with more violence. It's with self-sacrificial love. This is the power of God. And the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at this time of year is the celebration of God's wonderful plan or his strategy, which includes the church. That we, we get to be a part of the institution that's going to last to the very end. That we're a part of an organization. We're part of a, a family that has been in a positioned and empowered by God to do good and to make peace, to speak hope, to speak truth, to show the world what is right in God's eyes. But unfortunately, the church has fallen on hard times. We live in a secular society that is quick to say the church is irrelevant, maybe even accuse the church of being dangerous. And I encounter an increasing number of Christians who have lots of criticism for the church. They'll tell you all the things that are wrong about the church, but they speak very little, very few words of praise for the church. And I understand. I, look, I, I'm fully aware that the church has done a lot of damage in history, not just distant history, but recent history. I understand we fail. I understand our, our uh, I've lost my words here. I, I understand we, we fail, and how frail, how fickle we can be. But I also know that God loves to use unlikely and lowly people like us. It is infinite wisdom. God sent Jesus into the world to be raised by a couple of poor teenagers from a small town who had prostitutes and despised foreigners in their family tree. I understand that God sent the shepherds, or sent angels to share this good news with stinky, smelly shepherds who are working the night shift. And I know that God today continues to work in similar ways. Continues to work through shy teenagers in their high schools that nobody seems to notice. He works through single mothers who are barely scraping by. He works through recovering alcoholics who are just trying to make it till their next meeting. And he works through those who are recent widows and divorcees who are trying to just get used to their new normal. And he works through underappreciated stay-at-home parents and overworked business execs. And it's people like that gathered in churches all over the world that God holds up. He holds up his church as the best evidence of his wisdom. And this wonder is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25 through 28. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. And for this reason, I will always hope and believe in the church. And for this reason, I will make it a priority of my life to assemble as often as I can with other believers. And it's for this reason that I continue to believe that the church is the best hope to bring joy to the world and peace on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're overwhelmed with gratitude this morning for your willingness to enter into this world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to bring an end to the hostility that exists between between people, uh, between all of creation, to say no more, to show us a greater way, to show us what love and action really looks like. Father, we're thankful that at this time of the year we can focus a little bit more intentionally upon this great move that you made, a move of great humility and sacrifice in your son making the decision to leave the glory of heaven, to enter into the world as a baby, to become the king that we've needed more than anyone else. Father, may our hearts be stirred and be moved. May we realize that your wonderful, your plan, your wonderful strategy is being worked out day by day by day, and eventually it will come to fulfillment. And may we understand, because we're at the time, the beginning of the end of all the dangers that we face, may we trust in you, but may we also realize that we can depend upon you to protect us, and we don't have to do it for ourselves, that we can live life with a spirit of love rather than a spirit of aggression, even a spirit of defensiveness at times. But we can just love with all that we have in our being. Father, we're thankful that you are a God of justice and righteousness, and we're thankful that you're a God of grace. Please move in us this morning as we enter back into the community to be looking for places where we can speak this truth in the lives of other people, that for those people that we encounter who are in that situation where they're the ones who are stuck between the rock and the hard place, we can speak truth into their lives to say, look to Jesus because He's the answer. He's the one that can free you. He's the one that can lead you out of bondage. You've done it for us. May we share it with others. And may all praise be given to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.